It's no secret that the utility industry is facing a labor shortage, especially as experienced workers retire out of the industry. Getting tomorrow's line workers trained and ready to face all the challenges of the job and to do it all safely is a big task. We wanted to see firsthand how it was being done, which brought us to Indianola, Iowa, a town just outside of Des Moines, to talk with one of the leading safety voices in our industry, Tim Vasios. Tim's organization, the Missouri Valley Line Constructors, is part of the Electrical Training Alliance, an organization founded by the IBEW and NECA to get apprentices trained to do the job. And here in Indianola, they've just built a top-notch training facility to do just that. So let's sit down with Tim to learn all about how they're getting tomorrow's line workers ready to do the job today and how safety is a major part of what they do. First, thank you so much for having us here at this brand new state-of-the-art facility in Indianola, Iowa. It's a really fantastic facility, and I'd like to talk a lot about that. But first, can you tell our audience a bit more about yourself and your background? Uh, my background is, I, I always tell people I identify as a journeyman lineman, but in the industry I've worked as a substation technician. I actually started in the trade as an inside wireman. Uh, I've been trained as a network mechanic, uh, underground transmission splicer, obviously overhead underground distribution, transmission, uh, pretty much all points in between. So my, my specialty here is, is just to instruct really anything electric, so I, I try to help where I can. For those who are listening who aren't familiar, tell us a bit more about the Missouri Valley Line Constructors and what they do. Sure, so uh, our organization, uh, Missouri Valley Line Constructors, is one of the area joint apprenticeship training committees. So uh, in the United States, actually across North America, you've got the IBEW and you've got NECA, National Electrical Contractor Association. So between those two entities, the IBEW and NECA, they equal parts formed a third entity which is, was formerly known as the National Joint Apprenticeship Training Committee, which has really now been rebranded as the Electrical Training Alliance. So from that national program that established a, a, really a curriculum for outside line as well as inside wiremen, the United States for, for outside line was divided up into various areas. So Missouri Valley, AJ, ATC, is one of those nine areas. So the area we cover in the upper Midwest area is basically North Dakota, South Dakota, as well as Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Missouri. So that's our seven state region. So essentially all of the IBEW work, which is manned uh, and, and accomplished through NECA contractors in those seven states, Ours is the training element. We train all of the apprentices for that outside line work, uh, electrical work, and as well as we provide continuing education and professional development for all of our signatory contractors. So if there's any update, upgrade, refresher training needed uh, for the line series, we also provide that. So let's shift our attention towards the training that goes on here. What do apprentices have to go through when they get here? Sure. So step one is always application. So it's kind of unique in history of time. I can go back to my vintage many years ago. You had to wait for an opportunity to come up to, to become an apprentice in just about anything. But we're in a period now in, in construction 
where we're begging people to consider coming in. We have constant openings. So as an example, pretty much every other week we're putting on a class of about 30 apprentices. So the process begins for them when they go online and they apply online with Missouri Valley Line Constructors. Um, that, that online process proves pretty, pretty easy for most of them. They can put their information in. They, they have to be at least 18 years of age. They have to have a commercial driver's license. Now, sometimes the CDL hurts some of the, the younger drivers because they can't really cross straight lines. But if we have an arrangement with a contractor that's willing to keep them in a state uh, until they're 21, that works pretty well. So once they apply online and they meet the minimum requirements that we have, we will look at all that and we will develop a list and then we will invite people, applicants, to come down here to Missouri Valley and they will uh, basically work through a series of assessments. So there's a lot of academic assessments such as math, English reading, um, comprehension, and that's all online and it's, it's a, that's a national-based program. It's, a, it's, a, it's proctored, so if you can imagine 30, 40, 50 people in a room, they have to go through this battery of tests. And if they pass all of those tests, then the next step in the process is actually to go for an oral interview. So we have our committee members of the IBW and NECA for those seven states will all converge. Several of them will come down for a day or two, several days, and they will meet with each applicant one-on-one -on -one and learn about them. Try to explain to them what's expected of them as an apprentice. Try to learn if they have any idea what they're getting into, uh, where, where their, their personality is. So we've assessed their academics. We believe we have the aptitude to learn the, the things necessary really to learn the industry uh, concepts. And then they're looking at personality, they're looking at background, they're saying, are you gonna fit in? Do you have the right um, attitude? So we look at aptitude, we look at attitude. And if those things come together, we, we rate them on a scale basically, and we actually give a certain amount of preference treatment for folks that maybe have accomplished pre-apprentice programs as well as military. Uh, we're, we're actively involved with bringing military folks uh, out, of, out of the military right into the field so they get uh, a placement right in as long as they meet all the criteria. And then once we have that list established, we rely on our contractors to call us and say, hey, we have more work in this area, that area, I need more apprentices. So we evaluate, look at the number of apprentices we have, we look at who's on the list, and we, we schedule uh, an orientation class. So we do that 30 at a time. So we will go to that list of applicants that have completed the aptitude testing, and we say, hey, uh, Monday morning, uh, you're going to be in the, the next orientation class. So what we do is we, we provide them a hotel. They'll usually roll in Sunday night. Uh, they will come in Monday morning. First thing in the morning is, is basically what we call our boot camp. So uh, they're indentured at this point, but the first task they have to do is to complete all these physical assessments. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, taxing on them physically, especially if it's really hot or really cold out, but we put them through a series of tasks that simulate the type of manual labor that our contractors may expect of them on day one. 
So whether it's shoveling gravel, digging a hole, um, operating uh, hand-operated drilling devices, uh, you name it, it's, uh, it's challenging. It's tough, it's hard, but it's really uh, more of an emotional assessment. Will they stick with it? It's nothing that's impossible, but we, we get them through these challenges. And what it proves to us is when we send these apprentices out to work, they can do anything that the contractors expect of them. If, if they can't meet these minimum requirements, they're allowed to reapply for the program in six months. And we have many, many applicants that will fail and, and oftentimes they'll thank us. They'll be like, wow, we had no idea it was gonna be so tough. Thank you for letting us see that. And then they will go hit the gym, work on strength, work on whatever they need to, and then come back six months later. And they're, they're the most motivated and determined and they'll get through it. So once our, our uh, applicants make it through that first, um, we call it boot camp section, uh, obviously we have drug testing, we have random testing, so we, we test everybody right off the bat, and then immediately we start them in a, an ET&D OSHA 10 class, so it's all on safety. Uh, once we get them in the door, we know they're gonna stay, they, they've accomplished that first part, we put them in the 10 hour of construction safety training and and that's pretty much the afternoon of day one they're pretty wore out and tired by then so they don't mind being in the class and then we will finish that up and then once we get the initial construction training done where, where they understand all the aspects of the ET&D 10 hour, then we will issue tools if they don't have them themselves. So uh, what we have going out there right now is, is the first round of them learning to climb a pole using wood pole fall restraint. So we, we require 100% fall protection. Um, many of our apprentices have learned in a pre-apprentice program or maybe they've, they've entered from a utility or wherever they've come from. So we'll divide them up between people that have climbing experience and people that have none and then we'll put our instructors out in our pole climbing field and we will work with them appropriately at each level. And then there's certain uh, practical assessments that they have to complete by the time they leave here at the end of the week, namely pole top rescue, bucket truck rescue. So we take many people from never having put hooks on before by the end of our week and they're here all day and we'll keep them late if we have to by the end of the week they have to qualify with pull top rescue and the whole time they're doing all the learning to climb we have classes in between and then when when they leave here after their first week of apprenticeship we will assign them an LMS which is a learning management system online we give them uh, essentially a box of books that they get for their first year and they have a, a plan for learning they they self-pace they self-guide through the online learning through a combination of reading studying doing the work online answering quizzes and then they have access to their instructors at any time they can call with questions that they have but we've we've helped develop a lot of this curriculum where they can really guide themselves through it and then six months later they will come back to class for another week and in that that session of weeks what we do is we will assess them essentially test them on everything they were supposed to have accomplished 
We look at their grades online. We can, we can track all of that information. We test to make sure that they're achieving the minimum standard. And then throughout class that week, it's the same type of a rotation where we have lectures, we have classroom, we will focus on very specific um, academic criteria that they need to understand. And early on, one of the things we're looking at are obviously fall protection as well as grounding. Uh, some of the improper grounding that's going on is, is one of the, the causes for injury in our industry. So we make sure right from the get-go our apprentices have a very solid academic understanding of electrical theory, starting with DC theory, and then we move into magnetism, transformers, AC theory. It's, it's very tough, it's challenging, and a lot of people don't really realize what they're getting into when they start getting into that lesson plan and then that kind of learning. So we, we teach everything hands-on. So everything we tell them in theory, we will find a way to let them get their hands on it in a safe manner and, and try it and do it so that it, it understands. A lot of these uh, folks are, are, are a little more than a kinesthetic learner. It's their whole body they need to incorporate with learning. So that's how everything is designed is it's a combination of academics and it's a combination of getting the whole body trained into these motions that we need them to do. So once we're done in the classroom, we will head out to our various labs. If it's inclement weather, we have many indoor labs, but really the, the most uh, precious time we spend is outside in our 50-acre pole field where we get either on the underground equipment, the vaults, the, the submersible, or in the air, whether it's off the pole or out of a bucket truck, and we're, we're actually performing these tasks. So we, we have set aside certain tasks that based on the level where the apprentices are before they leave at the end of the week, they have to successfully complete certain level of academics as well as all these performance assessment tasks. And again, when they come every six months, that's how they increase the step. So when they leave here after their week long, they go back to their contractors at the next level. So they've had that last six months of experience, all of that self-paced learning. They've come here, we've tied up all the loose ends, we've prepared them for what's next. We reassign new work that they do over the next six months, and then we see them again every six months. So every apprentice comes into a program, there's a seven steps. So they start at the first step, six months later they're at the second step. So along each step of the journey, there's a minimum number of hours that they have to achieve as well as the academics. And then the other criteria we have for our apprentices to challenge the journeyman exam is they have to complete all of the academics, they have to complete all of the cold work, which is roughly 7,000 hours. Then there's an additional eight hours of what we call hot time that they have to complete. Now our hot time is a little different than other apprenticeships hot time in that uh, our line apprentices uh, can only count hot time when they're actually in their gloves and sleeves or their hot sticking live conductor. Um, grounding work, for an example, is energized work. We do it with live line tools. We teach and train that, but they don't count that time toward their hot time. It's, it's really for the best reference is actual uh, gloves on conductor moving phases around or hot sticking around. So it takes a long time to get 800 hours of hot time. So the idea is when they've achieved that, then they come back and they will, they will uh, challenge our final exam. We put them 
through some practical uh, challenges and then once that is all complete satisfactory they're now a journey level line worker and then they go back to work with a totally different status and now they begin the transition into a trainer they turn around and start training the next generation so our, our apprenticeship model is really focused on as most of them are it's training your own replacement so it's more than just learning how to do the work it's it's helping them learn how to be able to teach the work to the next generation. That's the legacy that we've been given, and that's what we continue on with. Now I want to move to a very important topic to our audience, safety. Tell us why safety is so important here and what you do to uphold that standard. So safety is more than important to us. You know, there's, there's people that have a value system, and, and what we teach and train in our apprentices because it's the value that all of our staff has here is quite honestly it boils down to we're tired of going to funerals we nobody wants to go to a funeral nobody wants to visit anybody in a burn unit and the unfortunate reality is it still is happening in our industry it's happening in our territory and that becomes the central theme that we focus on and rally around so everything we've built from the moment an apprentice drives down the street and pulls up to our building is, is meant to humble them a little bit from, from the size and the scope of the structure, what the material is made out of. It's designed to put them in that mindset that this is for real. And, and that's exactly how we teach and train. Even though we may be simulating something, we teach it as if it's the real deal. And every one of our our apprentices fully understand that. And if, if they don't treat it that way, if they don't have the right attitude that way, we will we'll help correct that and adjust it quite quickly. But in, in the focus of our safety, talking about values, safety is, is our value. We don't have competing priorities over safety. Um, safety is the number, it's not even the number one, it's, it's the number one on a list of one. It's, it's safety, everybody goes home, Everybody goes in, home intact in the same or better shape than they came in with a little more knowledge and experience. And then all of our competing priorities fall underneath that, whether it's uh, meeting deadlines or, or, or quotas, you, you name it. But the, the safety focus is huge. Um, we have certain rules. And many people say a lot of the rules for our work are written in blood, and there's, there's literal truth to that. And, and one of the academic uh, sessions that we teach continually is what are our work rules? Why do we have these work rules? And when people understand the stories behind why we do something, it, it tends to help them uh, agree with, okay, we'll do it this way. And, and again, our, our work rules may be different from other work rules. Some of the journeymen have looser rules than our apprentices do. So at Mo Valley, our goal is to protect apprentices. Our goal is to protect other workers from our apprentices. So all of our work rules are written in that perspective in that we don't want to see our apprentices get hurt in a, in a situation, something that's beyond their ability, and we don't want our apprentices to hurt somebody else as a result of a situation that's beyond their ability. They're just learning. So when we put them in the field, anytime they are at any, any voltage over 600 volts, they have to be at the same height 
with an, a, a journey level line worker, meaning they have to be eye level with them. They may not be in the same bucket, but one may be on a pole, one may be in the bucket. They have to be right next to each other to communicate and really observe what's happening. Uh, we've had many cases come up uh, unfortunately, where, where people will test that rule. We'll have apprentices or even journey level line workers or, or foremen on a crew that will think, well, maybe that rule doesn't apply to us. And they'll put apprentices in these situations where they will work by themselves in a primary zone. And you know, the good thing is nothing bad happens other than the bad thing is that was a cardinal rule that was broken. So when our committee, our board members, when the apprenticeship finds out about those things, if we find out about them, we investigate it fully. And again, our goal is to make sure people understand the rule, why the rule exists, and there's, there's clarity in these are non-negotiable, and then we will go to these folks and find out, is this what happened? Why did it happen? And we will gather information and then take it back to our board, which ultimately will make a decision. And it has happened very recently. We've had apprentices that were very close to topping out that were excused from the program. Their indenture was canceled because, as an example, that was one of the cardinal rules they broke. They, they chose to go in the air by themselves, two apprentices, to work energized primary, and their foreman uh, allowed it. So the two apprentices are no longer apprentices. And then the foreman, now we do not have authority over uh, a foreman, a journey level line working in, in the field, but what we can do is revoke their training privileges. So we have those agreements where if we have a journey level line worker who willfully violates one of our safety rules and, and, and puts an apprentice in a hazardous situation or increases their risk willingly, knowingly, uh, especially knowingly, we can come back and through our agreements with our contractors as well as the local unions, we will revoke that person's training privileges, which means basically you can't work with one of our apprentices until you complete this plan that's put in place for you by our board. And, and sometimes that plan may involve having some remedial training about theory, perhaps grounding, a rubber gloving class, uh, an OSHA 10 class, OSHA 20 class, whatever may, may happen to be the, the decision of our board of directors, they will come down and say, look, this person needs to complete these things and then we will consider putting apprentices back with that. Uh, individual. So we, we've gotten to a point in our industry where we have the full backing of both the contractors as well as the NECA employers, obviously the apprenticeship, and then most of the members of our industry are all in agreement with that level of accountability. There's still a few folks that just don't think the rules apply to them, and, and as those issues come up, we, we deal with them. But our apprentices, again, we're, we're teaching them to teach the next generation, so we are trying to teach them, in addition to the technical skill, we're giving them the soft skill opportunities to learn how to think through situations, control their emotions, understand what they're being asked to do, and then really have the courage when and where and how to say no. And that's not an easy task, especially when you're, you're a learner for years and then you get to a certain point where the end is getting closer to your training time and you know better and you look around and the folks around you 
seemingly don't know better or are asking you to violate it, that's when we're asking them to step up as a leader and say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not letting you do that. I'm not going to let another apprentice, a younger apprentice, see me violate that rule because we're just not going to let it happen. So that's, that's really one of the, the ways that we focus on safety, uh, again, with our work rules and then how we teach and train. Everything is focused on ensuring people go home intact. So you're kind of in a period of transition here, moving into this brand new facility. Can you tell us more about the process of planning out a new facility like this and getting the right team to come together to help build the facility and create a training program that works? So just like any, any trying to tie together what's, what's led us up to this point, really it goes back to our, our, our committee, our, our board of directors, if you will. So our committee, which is made up of equal parts of our IBEW um, union leadership, as well as our NECA, the, the contractor leadership, they combine forces and then through the third entity, our training arm as we are, uh, these folks who have all come up in the trade, all come up in their tools, sit down and they look at the industry as a whole. And, and they say, look, I want to leave this industry better than I found it. So I'm in a position now where I have some authority, I have some ability, what can we do? Where have we been? Where are we now? And where is our industry going? And how do we leave that legacy? How do we pass down what's been given to us? And then how do we leave something for the next generation? So the, the groups of people on all aspects of this whole organization that, that are directly or indirectly involved for years, I would say five, six, seven years, have had this dream, this idea of conversations where we need to do something different. So we've, we've recently just transitioned out of the old way of doing things, which was nothing wrong with it, nothing bad about it, to our new manner of training and teaching apprentices. And the environment is critical for that. So in order to transition from what we used to do where apprentices would go to a satellite remote training facility once every five, six weeks or so, meet with their instructor um, loosely in a, in a very, um, is a good safe environment, but basically when you're trying to run five satellite locations, funding is a problem. You, you can't set up the same five things, you know, five different places. It's just too expensive and it's hard to keep things consistent. And then the other problem we have in that type of a format is, is our apprentices, whether they uh, have storm leave or military duty, they are excused from class. So with the amount of storms that go through our territory, it's not uncommon for apprentices to get off track. They're supposed to be in class, but they're on a storm, so they don't go to class maybe for 12 weeks or perhaps 18 weeks. Uh, and that's a long time to go between classes. So we were losing some of the academic structure as well as some of the, the alignment of keeping everybody on the same page. So looking ahead many years ago, uh, our leadership basically said, how can we improve that? How can we make that better? So we've transitioned from a monthly program to a week-long program where our apprentices come for a week at a time and it's scheduled six months in advance. And again, other than uh, military duty, which we can schedule in advance, most of the time they know, or a storm, 
you're going to be in class. There's, there's no question. You're going to be there for the week. The contractors know it. They, they want it this way. And with that transition, we still had students on monthly program. We had already started our week-long program, and we were starting to build this facility. So our old facility was about five, you know, maybe five minutes away. It was very challenging to plan, build this training center, start decommissioning the five other training centers, continuing to teach all of those apprentices out of those training centers, and then start up the month-long program here. And we've just about finished the transition of the line series apprenticeship. We've just started the, the substation apprenticeship, traffic control, street light, and then the, the underground apprenticeship as well. So we're, we're kind of bringing everything together to a centralized facility. And really the only way any of that works is how it starts is having the right people. So with this facility, as awesome and great as it is, it's a result of the combined effort of all the people that put the input into it. So our board of directors who basically financed everything, they will be the first ones to tell you that they, they had the dream, they had the idea, and they said, who are our subject matter experts? So they looked at the staff at Missouri Valley and they said, okay, what do you need to make this better than, than we found it? And they just got out of the way. They just said, tell us what you need. And, and, and we, we all collectively put it together and just great ideas of great people working together and seeing what other people are doing and saying, what are our needs? This is what we need to build. Not for just now, but we need to build for in the future. And, and one of the awesome things about our board is every time we go to them with a solution, they come back to us and say, not enough think bigger, think long-term. You know, you want this, that works today, but what about six months, six years, 16 years from now? What do we need to do to plan ahead that far? And, and it, it's, it's breathtaking to have people that are writing the checks that, that have that uh, sense of leadership to say, let's do it for the long-term. Let's all leave something behind that's gonna outlive each one of us. So that really only comes from the people. So we, we have the right people in the right place at the right time. So what we're building is, is more than just the building, but it's really the culture, it's the atmosphere of everything, the legacy that we're leaving. And my final question, what are some insights, strategies, and learning experiences you'd like to share with our audience to help other safety leaders with their training and safety strategies? Well, always, always the people that are doing the work, whatever the, where the rubber meets the road, listen to the folks that are doing the work. They'll tell you what they need. You know, you, you've chosen them. We've selected them. Um, I go back to, you know, Mac Turner, a friend, long, long time, know him, and, and even going for my CUSP credential, sitting in class with him. I just love how he explains leadership. You know, your, your job as an effective leader in this industry is taking the authority of the resources you have and you are to supply those resources or remove the barriers for the people doing the work. That's your role. Don't get in the way. Don't, don't mess it all up, I guess, for lack of a better word. But I think that's the thing we appreciate most is we have that kind of leadership that, that says, look, what do you need? What is stopping you from getting it done? How can we help? And then they do it. 
and then they just back away and say, you let us know when you need something. So from, from the big perspective, if somebody is going to build something where they have to have a, a training facility or a safety focused thing, really you got to have the right people in place. It's great to have dreamers, it's great to have visionaries, but you've got to be able to execute. You, you, there's always more, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but there's, there's so many more great ideas than you can have than you have the ability to execute. And we're, we're struggling with that right now. We have so many great ideas and things we want to do. We just don't have the ability to execute them all. So we have to organize ourselves, we have to structure ourselves, and we have to systematically work through and prioritize what are the concerns, what can we do, and then we build from there. And, and planning is huge. So having a plan, knowing the plan is going to change is critical, and then having the ability to communicate with people and, and talk to your team and, and accomplish it. Because you can't do it by yourself. You need a team, but then you also need a team that works together, and you've got to have the right, the right leaders in charge, whether they're formal or informal leaders, that can take that and just kind of maneuver things through the process. Um, as far as strategic planning goes, you know, really whatever somebody is trying to build really needs to be unique for the needs where they are. So in outside line construction, it's very regional. What you call things, how you build things, standards, uh, the culture, the way of doing things is unique and, and one size does not fit all. The Mo Valley model will not work in other parts of the country um, and, and vice versa. Just because you have to know your people, you have to know the needs, you have to know the territory and, and ultimately you have to be able to predict what are the future needs going to be. So everything that we've built here has built with expansion in mind or adjustment in mind or how do we change it to make it better knowing it's not going to stay this way forever, whatever the case may be. So uh, I'm not sure if I tap dance around the, the answer, but... No, that was a great answer. Yeah, yeah. Now if I could just get you to say one more thing, just your name, title, and organization. Uh, uh, first start with saying hello. Okay, so hello, my name is Tim Vassius. I am one of the instructors at Missouri Valley uh, Line Apprenticeship. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, go to our website at incident-prevention.com slash podcast to get more or search Incident Prevention wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, stay safe.